uh, this morning. I, in some ways, we started our new sermon series last week, and in some ways, we're starting it this week. Did our overview last week of Colossians. But today, we're actually going to begin to get into the letter piece by piece uh, and draw out from it all of the good things that God has stored up for us in here. So this morning, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. But I just, I just want to read the first two verses to begin with and, and just highlight something for us that I think will help us as we go into this series together. So here's what Paul says, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So let's just stop there for a moment. There are certain things in life that we instinctively associate with certain benefits or pleasures. So maybe someone's only got to mention an upcoming holiday and we're immediately thinking of rest and relaxation. Or mention food and some of us are immediately thinking of, of flavor and fullness and satisfaction. Mention time with friends and we might immediately start thinking of fun and laughter and enjoyment. Mention a summer's day in the countryside and perhaps some of us take a deep breath and start imagining fresh air and peace and tranquility. Well, what kind of things should we be expectant of when we come to the book of Colossians? What kind of pleasures and benefits should we instinctively start to anticipate every time we open it up on a Sunday morning, every time we turn to it in our home group or in our quiet time or on our commutes? What kind of things should instinctively come to our minds as we think about this letter? At the start of this letter, Paul tells the Colossians what he intends his letter to bring to them. I wonder, did you spot it as we read? The problem is we often read over this bit, these first bits, like they're just, just pleasantries. But look again at his words at the end of verse 2, and you'll see what the intended effect of this letter is. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So here, Paul is announcing right under our noses at the very start, the blessing this letter will give to its hearers. All that we're going to find in this letter in the coming weeks and months, all of its prayers and its theology, all of its promises and loving warnings, all its exhortations and encouragements, all it's intended to impart from God himself is more grace and peace into our lives. It is intended to multiply and deepen our experience of grace and peace. And so we all, I think, every time we open up this letter, to come to it with that very expectation. To take these opening words as a promise. To take them to heart and instinctively associate time in Colossians with the anticipation of receiving grace and peace from God our Father. God himself promises nothing less. And I'm confident I hope you're confident as well. He's going to begin to do that even this morning as we listen to the first eight verses where Paul begins with great celebration and thanksgiving. So let's carry on reading from verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The title I've given to this morning's message is Celebrating the Work of God in Our Lives. Celebrating the Work of God in Our Lives. That is what Paul begins to do in this letter. And we're going to explore it, these opening verses, under just two headings. The first one we're going to look at is celebrating the gift of gospel fruit. And then we're going to look at confident in the gift of gospel truth. So celebrating the gift of gospel fruit and then confident in the gift of gospel truth. So the first thing that we find Paul doing in this letter as he opens up his message to the Colossians is celebrating the gift of gospel fruit. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. We, we always thank God, Paul says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul is continually thankful especially so in this letter. It's one of the most thankful letters that Paul ever wrote. And as we said last week, it's not just surface-level cheerfulness or uh, contented thoughts based on his immediate circumstances. Paul is in prison. A death sentence potentially awaits him. It takes far more than just sunny optimism to be thankful in those kind of circumstances. And I know some of us are facing difficulties in which we know firsthand that it'll take far more than sunny optimism to create in us a heart of thankfulness and celebration. So where does Paul's heart of thankfulness and celebration come from? What is it that fuels and sustains it even on death row? And is there a way for our lives somehow to run on the same fuel as Paul? Wouldn't it be amazing if they could? Well, let's look at what he's thankful for. Clearly, first of all, he is thankful for something in the Colossians, something present in their lives. Three things, in fact. Three fruits on display in their lives that he knows are priceless gifts from God. Three fruits displayed in these very ordinary, everyday Christians that powerfully evidence the work of God in their lives. Well, what are these fruits that we're talking about? Just pretend for a moment that we haven't just read the passage and you haven't already, I'm sure, clever people that you are worked out what these fruits are. What would most people say would bring them uh, unshakable joy and a continual reason for thanksgiving? What would most people say? Maybe they'd say, well, uh, maybe freedom from sickness or a lighter workload or to be half my age or to earn a lot more money or to go to more parties or to have more peace and quiet. But what about death row Paul? He doesn't seem to need any of those things to have a heart that is filled, continually poised to celebrate and overflow with gratitude. So what is it that warms Paul's heart with gladness, no matter his circumstances? What is it that should stoke our own hearts towards thanksgiving more than anything else? 
Paul's answer is simple yet profound. He is keenly thankful wherever he finds, present in other believers, the fruits of faith and hope and love. So let's learn this morning now from Paul's example by taking each of those fruits in turn and considering why they make him so thankful. First of all, he talks about their faith. We always thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And uh, I don't know why, as I was preparing this week, uh, the, the, the classic song by George Michael came to mind where he sings, I've got to have faith. But you want to say, what kind of faith? Faith in what? What kind of faith have you got to have? Faith in ourselves? Faith in a better tomorrow? Faith in faith? The truth is that faith on its own really isn't worth much at all. It's no good just being a person of faith. Faith derives all of its value from its object, from what our faith is in. So if you're not a Christian yet this morning, it's no good just trying to have faith. That really won't do you any good. Everything rides on what your faith is in. And if you are already a Christian, but maybe you're going through a hard time right now, it's, it's no good people around you telling you, ah, oh, well, you just need to have more faith. You can rightfully challenge them kindly and say, but faith in what? What are you telling me to have more faith in? Paul tells us what kind of faith is truly worth getting excited about and celebrating, and it is faith in Christ Jesus. Because it's faith in Jesus that leads to salvation. Now, one of the most Uh, moving and enjoyable Christian biographies that I've ever read is about a man called John G. Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides in the mid-1800s. And during his time witnessing to the islanders there, he set about translating the Bible for them. But he got stuck. He was, I think, translating John's gospel at the time, and he got stuck on the word faith. The islanders were cannibals. So they went around eating each other. So no one really trusted anybody, and as you wouldn't uh, if someone was going to eat you. And so they didn't have a word for faith in their language. But then one day, while working on his Bible translation, a local man entered Patton's hut, exhausted, and flung himself into one of the chairs and put his feet up on a nearby chair and everything. And then the man exclaimed how good it was to lean his whole weight into the chair. And finally, Patton had his word. He had what he'd been searching for. He noted down the phrase, lean your whole weight upon, and used it to translate this word faith. That is what faith in Christ is, leaning our whole weight upon Jesus for salvation. And that is what, through the mighty working of God, the Colossian Christians had done. They had lent their whole weight upon Christ. And that is what we have done too, if we're Christians here this morning. If your trust is in Jesus this morning, if your trust is in Christ to save you, it's because God has come into your life and given you the gift of faith. He has opened your eyes once and for all, to believe and trust in the Savior. And that is a gift continually worth celebrating. So Paul celebrates their faith. Second, he celebrates their love. 
He says that he thanks God for the love that you have for all the saints. Now, the love that Paul's talking about here is, is not mere sentimentality. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It's an active and demonstrable love. It's a, it's a love and care for others that is costly and demonstrated and lived out practically in acts of loving kindness. And he tells us it's an indiscriminate love too. Paul has been told of their love for all the saints. Now, let's just be clear about that word saints, in case anyone is confused. He's not talking about them having a very special affection for a few uh, special dead Christians. That would be kind of strange. But you know, like some churches get named after St. Andrew, St. Paul, St. Mary, and so on. Now, this word saint literally means holy one, holy one. And the truth is, every single Christian believer is, is designated, declared to be a holy one, a saint. You and I, if we're Christians, are saints. But before we let that go to our head and we start naming buildings after ourselves, uh, we need to understand that our status as holy is not something we've earned in any way. It's not an exam we've passed or a certificate we've worked hard for. Our holy status, our sainthood, is an undeserved gift. A grace-bought status given to us simply as a result of putting our faith in Christ. That's why Paul addresses the letter back up at the beginning in verse 2 to the saints in Christ. We are saints in Christ at Colossae in Bristol. The very moment we first lean our whole weight upon Jesus like, like falling back into that chair, we become wrapped in his spotless holiness covered by it. And at that moment, God declares us to be forever more holy in spite of all our sin. That is the sheer, gracious vastness of God's love towards sinners, revealed and displayed at the cross. And then when a person actually becomes a recipient of that kind of love, when we, through faith in Christ, get welcomed into God's family through Christ's death, that kind of love truly changes us. It truly changes us. It changes who we're willing to go and love and serve because we have been loved so freely and welcomed so completely. And so we see God's saving love has changed the Colossians. Their love for each other was no longer choosy or selective. It wasn't narrow, but immeasurably broad. They didn't just go around serving the most impressive Christians or the most lovable Christians, or the Christians most like themselves, or the Christians they found it easiest to talk to, Paul has heard they had a love for all the saints. Be they Greek or Jewish, young or old, man or woman, slave or free, they knew they were all one in Christ, and so they loved each other with a love that was in fact, verse, look down to verse 8, a fruit of the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit has put this love in their hearts. And it must have been an incredible sight to see. In their day, a church full of people from every economic and ethnic and social background united in generous love for one another. It's no wonder that Paul thought this was something to prize and celebrate and give thanks for. But the truth is, I see this generous indiscriminate love for one another vividly on display amongst us too. 
And I hope that you see it too as you, as you just think about the people that are sat around you, the people that we share life with in this church together, the many evidences of their love. Praise God. Praise God for his work in our midst, producing this fruit of love for one another. It is beautiful to behold. It is a privilege to be a part of, and it is something so profoundly good at work in our midst that we should be continually thankful and celebrating this love. Paul celebrates their faith. He celebrates their love, this work of God within them. And the final fruit Paul celebrates in the Colossians is their hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, he says. Now this one, I don't know if you've noticed, is a little bit different. Usually hope in the New Testament speaks primarily of the act of looking forward to something. So a, a, a sort of a, a confident looking forward to something. Someone having a confident hope for the future. But this time here in Colossians 1 verse 5, Paul is talking a little bit differently. He's talking more about the content of their hope. The actual thing they're hoping in. The things that God has promised that he has laid up for them in heaven. So you could say they, they have hope about the future because of the hope that God has promised and prepared for them. Now, we're going to get more to the content of their hope, what it is they're hoping in, the content of these promises when we, under our second heading. But first of all, it's important to notice that their faith and love that we've just been looking at spring from this hope. One way I thought we could illustrate this is to imagine that faith and love are like these sparkling streams of water that um, perhaps you particularly find running down a mountainside. Streams that look so fresh and drinkable and life-giving. And as you stoop down to them and taste them, they're just delicious and so refreshing. The kind of streams that when you discover them and, and, you, and you taste them, you, you've got to ask, where do these streams flow from? What kind of spring is, is further up there that is producing such vibrant, refreshing water down here? Well, Paul says, if you follow faith and love back upstream, what you'll find is that they spring from hope. They spring from hope. They flow out of a confidence in the promises of God, which really does make sense. Only when someone is confident in God's saving promises can they respond with faith in Jesus. Only, only when they're confident of God's promises can they lean their whole weight on him. And again, only when a person is confident in God's saving promises can they truly overflow with love towards all God's people. Now, like I say, Paul's going to go on and talk more about the content of their hope in a moment. But just before we turn there, let's think about the significance of what Paul has said so far. Faith in Christ, love for all the saints, hope in the promises of God. Wherever we see these three fruits present, however small, whether in our own lives or in the lives of those around us, we have reason for celebrating and thanksgiving, especially because they are not our own doing. They're not something we earn or self-produce. God gives these three things as gifts to the undeserving. He gives faith to the faithless. He gives new hearts of love to the unloving. And he gives a sure and certain hope to those in the deepest, darkest despair. 
quite frankly, these three gifts are profound. They are hallmarks of a work of God in the soul of man. They are faith, hope, and love sufficient evidence that a person is a genuine Christian, that we have truly become children of God. They reveal that we have a hope and a future already laid up for us in heaven, one which no trial or difficulty in the here and now could ever rob us of or remove. I found this helpful from one writer, Mark Maynell. He said, the reason believers can endure through hardship is that Christian hope is emphatically not wishful thinking. They are not idly holding out for a kind of spiritual lottery jackpot. Their hope does not depend on luck. Instead, hope's core is a promise, which is why Paul equates hope with the message of the gospel. So hope is this mighty heavenly spring that flows down into our day-to-day lives, and it's a hope that's laid out for us in the gospel, which means that knowing and believing and having confidence in the gospel is really key, which is why, because we come to our second heading this morning, we find that Paul wants them to be confident in the gift of gospel truth. We've seen Paul celebrating the gift of gospel fruit, God's mighty work in their lives, evidenced by their faith and love and hope. But now he wants them to be confident in the gift of gospel truth. Verses 5 to 8. He says, Of this hope, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So remember, all of their faith and their love, and not to mention their thanksgiving, is meant to flow out of the object of their hope. It's going to flow out of the thing they're hoping in. But what is it that Christians ought to be hoping in? What is it that you and I ought to be hoping in this morning? The answer that Paul gives here is that our hope is in a message. A message that the Colossians heard from Epaphras and uh, Wouldn't it be wonderful to ask the question of us, who did you hear, who did you first hear this message from? Maybe it was a friend or one of your parents or a church, I don't know. But they heard a message, we have heard a message, a message of good news, the gospel. But can we be confident that all that we need is in the gospel? You see, it seems, and I think we touched on this a little bit last week, it seems that the Colossians may have begun to worry that what they had been told The message that they had heard from Epaphras might not be the whole story. Maybe he'd missed something out as he reported it to them. Maybe they needed something additional, some extra teaching or insight, some deeper experience or stricter lifestyle, some special miracle or revelation. Maybe, just maybe, they were still lacking something, something vital that would enable them to truly live a full Christian life to truly thrive and grow in fruitfulness, but not according to Paul. He wants them to be utterly confident in the gospel message they've already received. He wants them to know that they already have, in what they've heard, everything they could ever possibly need. So in this this second half of the passage this morning, he lays out four compelling reasons why they and we can be utterly confident in the object of our hope, in the message of the gospel that we've received. 
four reasons for confidence. His first reason for confidence is this. It's the truth. Their hope is in the truth. Of this hope, he says, you have heard before in the word of the truth. Now, so many people talk today, don't they, about my truth and your truth and everyone having their own truth and each of us working out what our own truth is. But the gospel is not just another subjective man-made truth. It's not a truth at all. It's the word of the truth. So that if you've heard the words of the gospel, if you have heard the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified in the place of sinners, raised on the third day and exalted into heaven as king over all, you have heard God's true word. God has spoken into your life. You can be sure of it. And you can be equally sure of his invitation to come to him to receive forgiveness and life in his name. The gospel is the truth, God's truth. Secondly, he assures them it's universal. The content of this good news doesn't change depending on where it goes. The gospel message that went to Colossae is the same message that went elsewhere. It's the same message that we have today spreading, says Paul, throughout the whole world. Meaning, for them and us, there's not another church down the road or across the city that has a better gospel. As someone once said, they might be able to preach the gospel better, but they cannot preach a better gospel. There is only one true universal gospel for all peoples and all nations, and God has made known to us that universally true gospel. So it's the truth, it's universal. Thirdly, Paul reassures them it is powerful. He says in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. I mean, just look at what it's done in Colossae. Look at what it's done in us, producing these incredible fruits of faith and love and hope. In fact, the authentic gospel has always been recognizable by its growth by its ability to continually bear fruit, even in the most unlikely places, even in the most unlikely human hearts. And aren't we all a testament to that? As it says in Romans 1.16, the gospel, this message from God, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, if I can say it like this, is like Jack's magic beans in Jack and the Beanstalk. Okay, a bit like. Like Jack's magic beans, it may not look very powerful at first glance. But the moment the seed of this message is properly planted into a human heart, it shoots upward and outward with a growth that is from God. Except, of course, rather than finding an angry giant waiting for you at the top of the beanstalk, we find a gracious, welcoming, forgiving God come down to meet us right at the bottom. Everywhere it goes, the message of the gospel bears fruit. Everywhere it goes, producing faith-filled dependence on Christ, producing church communities and families that have been transformed by love, and producing people who, though they were once without God and without hope in this world, find themselves suddenly full of a confident heavenly hope for the future. 
wherever these fruits are found, you can be sure that the powerful gospel of God has been delivered there and it has come in all of its power. And fourthly, he assures them, fourthly and finally, that this message they've heard is full of grace. It brings us, he says, verse 6, to understand the grace of God in truth. As Dick Lucas writes, no single word more accurately defines the essence of the Christian gospel than grace. The young church at Colossae had understood grace in its true meaning and simplicity without any of the false additions that so easily make grace no longer grace. Meaning that they had come to understand that the heart of the gospel concerns not what we can give to God, whether that's before we become a Christian or afterwards, but it concerns what God in his immeasurable mercy has freely given for us. That the Son of God took on human flesh. That he came not to be served by us, but to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom for many, making peace by the blood of his cross, making a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to God. Not only that, through this gospel message, they and we have come not only to understand God's grace, but also to experience that grace for ourselves. Could there be any greater proof in all the world of of the gospel's all-sufficiency than that through it we have already experienced the saving grace of God in our lives? If the gospel we have is a gospel that has saved us, then we have God's true and powerful and gracious gospel. That through it we have been loved by him. We know we've been forgiven by him. We know we've been welcomed and adopted by him, not because of any merit in us, but because of all the merits of Christ who came in his grace to die for us. God has given us the gospel, this gospel. It is ours It's in our possession. He has entrusted it to us. He has placed it into our hands, we who sit here this morning, for us to understand and explore, for us to enjoy and celebrate, and for us to pass on. We have all that we need in the gospel, because in it we have all of the promises of God, a sure and certain hope laid up for us in heaven in Jesus. And that hope, as we go back, like a refreshing mountaintop spring, flows continually down into our lives, even now. Even now, this hope of the gospel is flowing into our lives, supplying and sustaining the streams of faith and love and thanksgiving, even when, like Paul, we find ourselves in the midst of great difficulties and trials. Let us then, together, always thank God when we pray for one another, for the faith we have in Christ Jesus, for the love we see in each other for all the saints because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. And let's be those who together go on recognizing and celebrating in humble, awestruck wonder God's mighty and gracious work in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we celebrate before you that you have done a mighty and gracious work in our lives. Father, we thank you for the truth, 
the life-changing, powerful, gracious truth of the gospel. Thank you for opening our eyes to see and understand and believe. Lord, we thank you for these gifts of faith and love that flow from that hope. Thank you, Lord, that we see these things in our lives. They're not our doing, but yours. And we thank you, Lord, they give us much reason, so much reason to give thanks and celebrate, Lord, whatever else we might be facing right now. Faith and love and hope you have given to us. And so like Paul, we can pray and thank you always for these things. In Jesus' name, we praise you and we thank you. Amen.